millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. Uh, my name is Gabriel Hakoen. I'm here, as always, with cult expert, cult survivor, my BFF, Sadie Carpenter. How are you doing today, Sadie? I'm, I'm doing good. Guess what? What? I have a desk and I have... So this is the first time in years that I'm not recording in a closet. And wow. I also... <laughs> yeah. Moving up in the I world. also... <laughs> I also have <laughs> dual monitors right now, so I can see our recording in one screen and our document with all of our sources and everything in the other screen at the same time. That's incredible. You're like you're living the dream here. <laughs> so I may be a little bit echoey today because I am in like a room instead of a closet, but I'll be building up my soundproofing as time goes on. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm also in a different place than normal. I am in the same city as Sadie right now, but I am in a different room and a different house and a different area as Sadie. I'm back in Portland for a couple weeks. Uh, but We're I, actually in a different county. We're actually, okay, that's true. I'm in Multnomah yeah. County. You're in Washington County, right? Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm here. I'm using um, a, a family member's podcast setup who also does podcasting. Um so, yeah, so this is going to be a little bit of a different day, but the material is absolutely classic. We've been doing this show about three years now. We've, I mean, we're, we're at almost episode 150, but we've made more than 150 episodes. I want to go back a little bit and pull a clip from the first ever episode of this podcast. This is an episode, this aired, it, it's Leaving Eden Podcast episode one called What Makes a Cult. It aired in... August of 2020, but we recorded this clip in, I think, probably May or June of 2020. Emotional control will also 
has an even darker side than that. Emotional control instills irrational fears or phobias of what might happen if you leave the group. So there was a story that I was told growing up, heard it from several different pastors in several different places. There was an early IFB pastor, and I think it was J. Frank Norris, but I'm going to have to fact check myself on who it actually was. This pastor uh, had a young man affiliated with his church who had decided to leave the church and go off into sin. And this young man was rebellious and he wanted to be worldly and he did not want to be part of the pastor's church anymore. And he began to threaten the pastor with uh, attacks. Again, you know, verbal attacks against the pastor, uh, maybe threatening to physically hurt him at some point in the future. And the pastor told him, young man, do not raise your hand up against the man of God. And the young man didn't listen. And about a week later, this pastor was driving down the road and he saw a horrible car wreck on the side of the road. And I, I do want to warn you, this next part is a little bit graphic. The pastor pulls over up next to this car wreck and he sees that the victim of the car wreck was the young man who had threatened him and the young man who wanted to go off into sin. So it's like a full like deus ex machina situation. Right. And uh, I'll spare you some of the, the really terrible details, but the car wreck, when this story is told... It's described in really grisly detail that uh, I don't believe is appropriate for a child of three or five years old, which is the age I was when I was hearing it for the first time. It's probably also anatomically impossible. Most likely. Uh, But what is claimed in this story is that as part of the injury from this car wreck, the young man had uh, his head split open and some of his brain matter was lying on the asphalt outside of the car. It's pretty gross. So this pastor uh, got a mason jar, which magically happened to be in the back of his car for some reason, scooped some of the brain matter off the side of the road. The real question is why there was that mason jar in the back of the car. (laughs) Well, there are a couple different questions here, because the next part of the story is he filled the jar with formaldehyde. Was he running moonshine? I don't know. The next part of the story is he filled the jar with formaldehyde. So then you also have to ask, where did he get the formaldehyde? He's a a southern man in in what year is this? I don't know, early 60s. Oh, the early 60s? Oh, I thought you were going to say it was like... The 20s or the... Oh, no, this is, like, fairly recent. If it was, like, the 20s, then I would say, yeah, he's definitely a bootlegger. Maybe he needs to examine that about himself. Maybe he does. But, no, the story goes that he scoops up these brains off the sidewalk and takes them to the pulpit the next week and says, this is what happens if you leave this church. This is what happens if you raise up your hand against a pastor. I told this story in the very first episode of our show. It was an example of the fear-based tactics that are used to control IFB members. J. Frank Norris was a controversial pastor in Texas. He had a lot of enemies, most notably people involved in alcohol manufacturing or distribution, and Catholics, really hated Catholics, but not as much as he hated communists or people in liquor manufacturing, as we're certainly going to get to. There was a man... The way that Norris told the story, there was a man who crossed him 
And after leaving his office in a tizzy, this man got in a terrible car accident, leaving his brain scattered across the road. The way I always heard the story, Norris came by in his car and saw the accident and scooped up a bit of the brain in a glass bottle or glass jar and took it to the pulpit the next Sunday morning to preach about this is what happens when you cross the man of God. This story was used to <laughs> instill... <laughs> But this was told as, <laughs> as like, yes, but also having researched Jay Frank Norris is this out of pocket for him? <laughs> no. Because not really. This not is far from the wildest story about him. <laughs> so this, this story, though, it was used to instill so much fear into IFB people because the message was don't cross the man of God or it'll be your brains on the pulpit next. And that means if your pastor tells you to make a certain financial decision or a certain spiritual or relational decision, you better do it unless you want your brains on the road. I'm imagining him scooping the, up the brains like he's playing polo. Yeah. You know, but like in a car. But, with a jar. In a car. <laughs> and, and this story like became really apocryphal because obviously J. Frank Norris died 40-ish years before I was born. So I never heard this story from him. I heard it from... My dad, who heard it from Jack Hiles, who maybe heard it from J. Frank Norris, but actually probably heard it from somebody who knew Norris. So because of this game of telephone, the story has become apocryphal and all these extra details have been added that weren't in Norris's telling of it. But we found the original source, the Norris-approved source for this claim. And it turns out the way that Norris told the story, there are some fact-checkable details. But before we get there, we have to talk about all the things that we know happened in the wild, wild life of J. Frank Norris. If this story was true, then this would probably be like the third or fourth craziest thing that J. Frank Norris was ever involved in. Yeah, I'd put it at a solid number three behind the... <laughs> <laughs> I put I put the arson first for sure. <laughs> you put the arson before the murder charge. I would put the arson. I would do I, because well, there were more arson charges. There was only one murder charge. Okay. Although he probably actually committed two murders. We're gonna get to that. No, I would say the arson is the craziest, and then the murder, and then the brains in the jar, and then close fourth is when he accused the mayor of paying twenty thousand dollars to keep quiet his affair. Don't don't spoil the whole the next two weeks because the next two weeks this week and next week we're going to talk about J. Frank Norris today we're going to talk about Norris's life life story his influence over the IFB movement Christian fundamentalism and even the broader evangelical movement as a whole to give some examples there is a very real possibility that J. Frank Norris was the originator of Christian Zionism uh, there is undeniable evidence that. Norris actively supported and was supported by the Ku Klux Klan. And in our research, we also uncovered some truly shocking revelations about Jack Hiles. And then next week is going to be the fun one where we're going to talk about J. Frank Norris's murder trial. And then we're going to thoroughly investigate Norris's story about the brain in the jar. And with the ample evidence that has now been provided to us to either prove or disprove the uh, factual basis of these claims. I am just so grateful that we decided to do a two-part episode on this guy. Because now I'm thinking, oh, I could have written five with no problem. 
because there is just so much to say about him. He was so much more important than even I realized. But let's get into it. Let's talk about the Texas tornado, the pistol packing preacher, the granddaddy of the IFB. But before we get into that, the Leaving Eden podcast is the podcast about my BFF and co-host, cult expert, cult survivor, Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult, the cult in which she was raised. We talk about this cult. We talk about other cults. We talk about religion. We talk about fundamentalism. We talk about the real and present threat the cults and cult ideologies pose to society as a whole. And it is our goal to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So if you like our show, if you are a fan of our show, there's a number of things that you can do to support us. You can join our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast. And if you sign up for that, you get all of our episodes in the extended form because there's just so much that we talk about that can't make it into the final streaming cut of the episode. Um, So there's an extended uncensored, ad-free version of all of our podcast episodes that ends up on our Patreon. They also come out two days early. So if you want to listen to it on a Saturday or a Sunday, don't want to wait until Monday, then you can sign up for the Patreon and they will show up there. You can also join our Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus and reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus is our subreddit. One more thing before we go and thank our patrons If you guys haven't noticed, we have a little bit of new cover art for our show in honor of us finally tracking down this J. Frank Norris brain in jar story. If if you're looking at this on your phone, you will see the brain in jar leaving Eden podcast logo. I think that's the podcast logo we might be running with for the next little bit anyway that is now available um as podcast merch you can get t-shirts tote bags i think you get phone cases too but that's all on our threadless shop uh and the link to the merchandise for us is in the description and if you purchase the merch for the show that goes and helps us make the show possible get it while it's hot would you like me to thank the patrons this week I would love it because I can't pull up their names because I'm on an iPad, not the the desktop version of the. <laughs> Gabby, when when are we going to record an episode where both of us are like in a normal proper studio? Because I don't know if that's ever happened. I don't think so. Like in maybe a couple weeks, couple weeks maybe. So, I don't know when I get back yeah, from, from maybe, Oregon. And I have my soundproofing up, and it, we're going to get there, folks. So okay, let's uh let's thank the patrons that make studio upgrades possible. Our I gave it all to your patrons are Kathleen Moncrief, Melissa Mosley, and Todd Dale on behalf of Madeline Antrim. So thank you so much to those I gave it all tier patrons. Our Faith Promise Missions patrons are Alex P, Ali Allen, Anisha Patel, Brittany, Brooke Tully, Krissa, Crystal Patterson. Dear Ethan Hansen, the musical, Dora J, Enchanted Fairy, Esther M, Hannah Ross, Hope Norum, Horton Hears a Shane, Janine Callen, Jen Kaharski, Jessica Tambo, Jonna, Kater Wee, Kristen Marie, Learned Vixen, Linda Morgan, Lindsay Goss, Lorena Watson, Madeline Antrim, Marlena Stuve, Marcia Millard, Mary Williams, Mary Martin, Megan Arndt, Rob the Methodist, Stephanie Johnson, Steve and Amy, Susie, Tara McNamara, 1010, welcome 1010, The Loch Ness, Tiffany Enderby, and Wes the Cowboy. Thank you guys so much for subscribing to our Faith Promise Missions and I Gave It All Tier of our Patreon. You guys really make this show possible. 
Yeah, and thank you to everybody who subscribes over on Patreon and to all of the listeners who support us in non-financial ways, like sharing our show with friends and family, posting about us on social media, adding us to Spotify playlists. Every little bit counts, even just people who download and listen every week. All of that is a great support, and we really appreciate it. In general, we talk about a lot of potentially triggering topics on this show, including but not limited to suicide and mental health, racism, misogyny, PTSD, PTSD symptoms, child abuse, mental, physical, and sexual abuse, and spiritual abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will mention at least a few of these topics. What we do to help our listeners is we try to avoid any graphic detail about these topics unless it's relevant and necessary to the story we're telling on that day. We also do our best to give the audience a heads up if we are going to go into detail on any of these topics. Today's episode is a little bit of a trigger warning for everything. Um, <laughs> this guy's... Think of this as if you were hearing a story about a 1920s mobster, and you won't be that far off. We're going to talk about some child abuse. We're going to briefly mention um, some cases of sexual assault. We are going to talk about uh, the KKK significantly. We're going to talk about racism and instances of racism in Norris's life. And also arson, building, buildings burning down, and some references to murder. This guy had, he had a wild life. But as always, like I said previously, we'll give you a heads up if there's anything that we're going to describe in any kind of graphic detail that um, sensitive listeners might want to skip over. As we've been researching Norris, it, it occurred to me, I grew up hearing this man referred to as one of the most important figures in the founding of the IFB, but I was never really taught about his life story. Now that I'm looking into this as a non-fundamentalist adult, I was probably not told about his life story because it's so incredibly wild and... <laughs> The scandals are so abundant in his in his life story. But I was I was always taught that he was one of the foundational figures of the IFB and he was so important. And I never really knew why he was so important until I researched for this episode. It turns out that J. Frank Norris had connections to almost every big name IFB old school guy you've ever heard of. He had direct connections to R.A. Torrey, to G.B. Vick, to Lee Robertson, and John R. Rice. And he forms a really interesting bridge between actually John R. Rice and Peter Ruckman. Ruckman was not discipled by Norris personally, but patterned his life after J. Frank Norris to an extent that was greater than I anticipated. This guy was actually extremely important. One of the books that I read for this episode is called The J. Frank Norris That I Have Known for 34 Years by Dr. Lewis Ensminger. And I wanted to read a quick quote from the preface to this biography. If I were writing about the average great man, it would be an easy matter to trace his life from his ancestry and birth to its end. But I doubt if there ever was a man in the Christian world since the apostolic days where there is such diversity and variety of experiences and of service. Throughout this biography, Norris is compared to 
important big biblical figures like the Apostle Paul or King David. And the praise for him and the fundy street cred that a person would earn by being connected to him didn't end when Norris died. Jerry Falwell said in the 1980s, after becoming famous politically as the founder of the Moral Majority, quote, I was trained by men who were trained by J. Frank Norris. Jerry Falwell describing the influence of, of Norris on himself is by itself a huge statement towards how monumental this guy was. I don't think that can be overstated. Norris was in pretty much every way the archetype for every fundamentalist pastor, and we're going to talk about how in more ways than one this is definitely true. I searched on Twitter looking for IFB pastors talking about J. Frank Norris, and I was spoiled for choice. Easily a dozen fundamentalist pastors with 5,000 Twitter followers or more had either posted quotes from Norris or comments about Norris or spoke of how his style was a big influence on them. Um, I want to take a moment uh, to talk about Jack Chick and his influence on Jack Chick. So I went to Jack Chick's website, and I found an article titled The Ethics of Street Preaching, um, and this is an article written by Chick. Um, and here's a quote from the article. It says, there is a right way and a wrong way. And he's talking about street preaching here. There is a right way and a wrong way. Um, those who choose the wrong way may gain immediate attention, but their reputation is short-lived. Everyone in the ministry cherishes the stories of our champions in the faith and thrill at the stories of John Wesley preaching to 10,000 in the cornfield or Whitefield able to be heard one mile away as he preached publicly our blood moves quickly as we read of general william booth on the streets of london or j frank norris going and preaching at his own public hanging um the public hanging that chick referred to was norris's 1927 murder trial um, it, it wasn't okay public hanging it, it's not an inappropriate figure of speech but it wasn't actually a hanging it was actually I don't even know if I'd call it a near miss with the electric chair. Relatively near miss, maybe? I, I don't know. It wasn't technically a public hanging. I feel like that's maybe a little um, appropriative. In a different article about street preaching, Jack Chick mentioned J. Frank Norris in the same sentence. He referenced him in the same sentence as Martin Luther, John Calvin, and Billy Sunday. So this is... Jack Chick, the guy who started the satanic panic, saying, J. Frank Norris, that's my guy. Yeah, so Norris was not the first fundamentalist. He didn't invent fundamentalism, but he very much made it what it was. He was a major player in popularizing fundamentalism and inspiring other fundamentalists, um, including a lot of names that we would know, certainly including Jack Hiles. Norris also, as you just mentioned, was a huge part of the biblical literalist movement. So that I read an incredibly interesting article. And let me pull it up so that I can properly cite this person. So this appears to be a uh, master's thesis or possibly a dissertation, I'm not quite sure which, but it is by Jacob B. Bratcher. Uh, the title of the article is Inspired in the Original English, The Life and Works of Peter S. Ruckman featuring John R. Rice and J. Frank Norris. 
I, I read this whole thing and then I sent Mr. Bratcher an email from the podcast account telling him how wonderful it was. Um, and just like, what a great article. Thank you. I, I fangirled over this article. This was incredible. This article traces the connections between uh, Ruckman, Rice, and Norris. And it turns out that the entire concept of biblical literalism that the Fundays are working with comes from discussions and debates and bad blood and friendship at different times between those three men. This guy was, this is what I'm saying. He was way more important than I thought. I knew he was important, but I thought it was for his style, his wild antics, the aesthetic that he brought to fundamentalism. But as I've learned more, it turns out that he was actually theologically incredibly important to the bones, the foundation of the fundamentalist movement. There's one other connection I want to make sure we hit, and that's with Charles Finney. So if you did not grow up in fundamentalism, you probably have no clue who this is. If you did grow up in fundamentalism, I'm sure the name rang a bell. Uh, he was compared to Charles Finney because they were both proponents of the temporal world affecting the spiritual world. Basically, we use methods that attract people here in the temporal world, and that's okay because it's all for the spiritual world. So it's totally okay to run a spring program with like wild prizes or promotions and to be very bombastic and to use clickbaity sermon titles. All of that is using the methods of the temporal world to affect the spiritual world. Is this just the ends justify the means, but make it Christian? Sure. It, it, it's, it's part of it. And the tendency of fundamentalism to use that kind of tactics can almost entirely be traced back to J. Frank Norris. And being able to put yourself in the lineage of Norris is still fundamentalist street cred. Peter Ruckman publicized broadly that he was baptized by one of Norris's deacons. That's how powerful the name and the legacy of J. Frank Norris were. His influence was fading by the mid-1940s, and then he died in 1952. However, the clout that you got from being associated with his name went on long after his life was over. I guess being baptized by J. Frank Norris or one of his deacons probably gets you more street cred and fundamentalism than paying $600 and being baptized by Brittany Dawn in the bathtub in a hotel room. <laughs> uh, why don't you put a pin in that? Because I've got some stuff to say about Brittany Dawn. <laughs> the J. Frank Norris, Brittany Dawn comparison is not going to end here, people. Absolutely not. It is absolutely not. Um, they have way more in common than I thought they would. <laughs> let's let's talk about who this guy was. Let's get into his biography. So John Franklin Norris was born to James Warner Norris and Mary Davis Norris on September 18th, 1877 in Dadeville, Alabama. I'm pretty sure I have some ancestors on my mother's side in Dadeville. So we might be like 10th cousins or something. Just... 120 miles south, and six years later, Bob Jones Sr. would be born in Southeast Alabama. Norris had a childhood that was filled with difficulty, 
poverty, and violence. And as the rest of his life unfolds, I want us to keep that in mind because I think we will see how this early violence molded him into the person that he became. So the way that Norris told his life story, his father, who went by Warner, was an alcoholic. Because of his addiction, he couldn't keep a job. And whenever the family could get a little bit of money, Warner would immediately spend it on alcohol. According to the other book that I read for this episode, which is extremely good, by the way, Menace in the Megachurch by David R. Stokes, Norris was called Frank as a boy, and he found comfort in the recently published book, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, because of its themes of fatherhood and absent fathers and alcohol addiction. It felt familiar to him. One of the most repeated stories of Norris's young life is a story that happened when he was 10 years old on either Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. He found his father's liquor stash and he broke every single bottle. When his father found out, he took a black snake whip and whipped his 10-year-old son until Mary, uh, Frank's mother, threw herself over Frank's body in order to make the brutal beating stop. In Norris's dramatized version, his father then fell to his knees beside the bedside of his injured son and prayed out loud, Oh God, liquor has ruined my life and my home. Take this boy that I have been so cruel to and send him up and down the land to smite the awful curse that wrecked his father's life and broke his mother's heart. So this is quite a superhero origin story. We're going to get into the veracity of these stories, but that prayer that he claimed his father prayed is very important to his life. He quoted it literally all over the country as he uh, was a figure in bringing about prohibition. Before Frank's 11th birthday, the Norris family moved to Texas. Warner Norris became a cotton sharecropper uh, near Waco. But despite his impassioned prayer the previous year, he was not able to make headway against his addiction. There's another story that Norris used to tell about a bar in Texas called The Blind Tiger. His mother, Mary, had visited repeatedly during their first few years in Texas to beg this bar to refuse service to her husband, but they had laughed her off repeatedly. She sent young Frank down one day to ask them yet again not to serve her husband, and the owner of the bar laughed him off, cussed him out, and physically threw him out of the bar. And Mary had just had enough. She, you know, you can la laugh at me, throw me out, but don't with my kid, basically. She came back with the horse and buggy. She whipped the owner of the bar with her horse whip and broke every liquor bottle in the place. So I know that either or both of these very dramatic whipping stories could have been exaggerated or just plain made up, possibly. Both of these stories are printed in the book, The J. Frank Norris I Have Known by Dr. Lewis Entzminger. This book, by the way, it, it is broadly speculated that Norris actually wrote the book and then just had Entzminger edit and add to it and make it flow better, which I absolutely believe because like, I didn't sit and read through this book, but I read parts of it and chapters of it and looked for information in it and have been in and out and through this book over the last couple weeks. The book is largely made up of quotations from Norris's sermons to begin with. And then a lot of Norris's personal stories are told in the first person. And Smigger just writes like little bits between to make the stories make sense. So we don't know the truth behind these stories, but we do know that Norris's young life was not easy 
And we know that his childhood was absolutely touched by violence, poverty, addiction, difficulty. So we've talked about traveling revival meetings and how they were prevalent during the first and second great awakenings, but persisted, especially in the South, for many generations after the second great awakening. We talked about this even in the Sheffy episode and in Call to Preach. My dad even talked about attending traveling revival meetings in the 60s and 70s as a child and teenager in Alabama. J. Frank Norris was saved at just such a revival meeting in August of 1890, and about a year later, violence visited the Norris family again. Warner had turned in a gang of horse and cattle thieves to local authorities, and they came to the Norris family farm looking for revenge. These horse and cattle thieves shot Warner, and when 14-year-old Frank charged the assailants with a knife in defense of his father, he was shot three times as well. Warner recovered fairly easily, but Frank's recovery took over three years as he fought gangrene and inflammatory rheumatism. During Frank's recovery, he was visited often by a local preacher named Cat Smith, and it was during these visits that Norris was called to preach. So this story has like all of the fundamentalist tropes. Yeah, it, it is... Um. It's a classic story. And then Norris starts to break the rules. And this is where he starts to, to break the mold a little bit. At the time in this part of Texas, in broadly Baptist circles, which almost always meant affiliation with the Southern Baptist denomination, people didn't necessarily go to seminary especially to pastor a small country church that had 50 or 100 members because it was that rural and that far out in the middle. This is, it wasn't, it just wasn't what was done. How you became a pastor in this part of Texas in the Southern Baptist Convention when Texas was still very literally the Wild West is an older pastor would set you up with an internship at one of these small churches and you would basically be the assistant pastor there until the main pastor died or retired, and then you would move up. So Cat Smith set Norris up very much in this way to work at Mount Antioch Baptist Church for an internship, but Norris decided to throw out the playbook, and he went to Baylor University. At the time, uh, Baylor University's theological department was an official Southern Baptist seminary, and it was kind of where you went in this entire region of the country to become a Southern Baptist minister. Norris did not have a good reputation at Baylor. There are stories of him being a very cruel person. He bullied a fellow student for having a stutter, and a serious charge was bought to, brought to the editor of the school newspaper that Norris had embezzled offering money that was collected for a sick preacher. Wait, didn't we just hear a story just like this? Yeah, there was this uh, houseless man named James, and <laughs> it's not going to stop. I'm telling you. In 1903, Norris got married. He married Lillian Gaddy. Lillian's father was Dr. J.M. Gaddy, who was a general missionary for the Texas Baptist General Convention. Hold on to his father-in-law's name, because that's coming back. Dr. Gaddy was just very well-known, very re well-respected 
Baptist missionary. So while Norris was at Baylor, he was involved with a group called the Haydenites. The Haydenites were a denominational splinter group who followed a Southern Baptist leader named Samuel A. Hayden. Samuel Hayden was known for owning a newspaper called the Texas Baptist, which was later renamed to the Texas Baptist and Herald. Hayden used the Texas Baptist and Herald to attack not only the Southern Baptist Convention at large, but also anybody that he had personal beef with. There was a rival newspaper owned by a man named J.B. Cranfill called the Texas Baptist Standard. And the rivalry between the Texas Baptist and Herald and the Texas Baptist Standard was so intense that it was referred to as the paper war or the Texas Baptist newspaper war. Is this newspaper war like the 1890s, early 1900s Texas Baptist version of the Musk versus Zuck fight that absolutely nobody on earth asked for? I I don't know. I've kind of unfollowed that kind of because i just okay so how intense was this texas baptist newspaper war was it just people making fun of each other and you know calling each other heretics in newspapers and like mean tweets no it was not samuel hayden and jb cranfill were on a train going to the same southern baptist convention in 1904 when they ran into each other in the bathroom on the train Cranfill pulled a gun on Hayden. There was a physical fight. The gun went off, but no one was hurt. And it was the kind of thing where, so Cranfill said, Hayden came up behind me and I assumed that he had a gun. So I pulled my gun. And then Hayden was like, I just came in to use the bathroom. I wasn't going to hurt him. And I definitely wasn't sneaking up behind him. I don't know why he pulled a gun on me. And then they, they got into a physical fist fight and the gun fired one way or another. I bring up this story because you need to know how serious the Texas Baptist newspaper business was in the early 1900s. It was, when they call this a war, it's not really that exaggerated. (laughs) Norris then went to, so after he graduated from Baylor, he went to Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky for a Master of Theology degree. The Southern Baptist Theological Seminary was the premier Southern Baptist seminary at the time. And it has several notable alumni that we have spoken about, including William Bell Riley, who you might remember showing up all over the Scopes Monkey Trial episode, as well as Lee Robertson, who became a very well-known IFB preacher, and W.A. Criswell, who probably only the real fundy buffs will recognize the name W.A. Criswell. Uh, Criswell was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, Many presidents of the Southern Baptist Convention have graduated from both Baylor and uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Norris pastored after graduating from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He pastored the McKinney Avenue Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas for two years from 1905 to 1907. He graduated at the top of his class at both Baylor and Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and received multiple offers from Southern Baptist churches around the country. He accepted the offer to pastor McKinney Avenue Baptist Church in Dallas because he wanted to be close to the headquarters of the Southern Baptist Convention. From the very beginning, he had his sights set on climbing the ranks of the convention. When he arrived at McKinney Avenue Baptist Church, Only 13 people showed up to hear him preach his very first sermon. 
but over the next two, two and a half years, the church grew to over a thousand members. Wow. Was Norris just that good of a preacher? Well, he attracted the attention of denominational leaders like George W. Truitt, a highly influential Southern Baptist preacher who would also later serve as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. But he didn't necessarily only attract Truett's attention because his church grew so quickly. He attracted Truett's attention because he grew his church by stealing Truett's members. Is that sort of thing frowned upon? They, they called this sheep stealing. Oh, okay. So there's like an actual term for it that Christians have a term yeah. for it. And like people still use this on bus routes. If you have two neighboring bus routes, um, like if you're Hiles Anderson College students and your bus route backs up to somebody else's bus route and you cross the line to get kids from the other person's bus route and like hustle them across the street to get on your bus, they still call it sheep stealing. That is too funny. Yeah. That is too <laughs> funny. Yeah, the term that we used for this when I worked at Guitar Center was swooping. Like, you could steal a deal from somebody else and then take their commission, but if you got caught for it, you'd get in big trouble, and it was like a big deal if somebody got caught doing it. I know people that, like, quit or were fired over doing stuff like this. It was, like, it was it was extremely frowned upon. So the thing is that, that used cars weren't really a thing during much of Norris's early ministry because the only cars that were there were new cars because cars had just made it to Texas. Um, but he would have made a great used car salesman given the opportunity. Truett was, Truett was like, he was a big name denominational guy, right? He couldn't necessarily call Norris out for what he was doing because he had to be this big refined Southern Baptist gentleman, old school, old school preacher, you know, I'm a very fancy and I want to be president of the Southern Baptist Convention in a few years and I can't lower myself to deal with this young fellow who's stealing my church members. But Norris decided he didn't like Truett after stealing a bunch of his church members and that he needed somewhere to vent his frustrations. Conveniently, right about this time, 1906-1907, the Baptist Standard was coming up for sale. So Cranfills, and of course, Norris being Norris, he was very interested in joining the Texas Baptist newspaper wars. He thought that sounded like a great idea. But where was the money to purchase the Baptist standard going to come from? Well, conveniently, towards the end of 1906, Norris came into a large sum of money. How did he get that money, you ask? Well, <laughs> you remember the Reverend J.M. Gaddy. Norris's father-in-law, who was a well-known and well-respected Baptist missionary, that J.M. Gaddy. Well, Reverend Gaddy was on a train with his up-and-coming firebrand son-in-law in December of 1906. The rumored reason that they were on the train is that Norris was accompanying Gaddy to San Antonio because Gaddy was dealing with nervous exhaustion, which is what we would now call like a mental break or a nervous breakdown. And Gaddy was going to go to San Antonio to go into Dr. Moody's sanitarium to work on his mental health. Well, while Gaddy and Norris were on the train, 
Evidently, Dr. Gaddy wandered out of bed around 4 a.m., walked to the train platform, and somehow fell off the train. Norris was asleep in bed, and he didn't realize that his father-in-law was missing until the next stop. When Norris immediately got back on a train heading back north to look along the tracks for his poor father-in-law who completely accidentally fell off a train. Fell off. Fell off a train. He fell off a train. I've never heard of this before. Something that famously happens to a lot of people. I mean, I fall out of my car going down the highway all of the time. Not even a little suspicious. <laughs> so, Gaddy did fall off the train or somehow exit. I shouldn't laugh, but it was over 100 years ago, so hopefully I'm okay. So, Gaddy didn't die from quote-unquote falling off the train. They actually found him alive along the track because he did fall off the train, but he didn't get run over. Sadly, Gaddy died from his injuries shortly thereafter, before Norris's northbound train even caught up with where Gaddy had fallen off the southbound train. Norris being the husband of Gaddy's only child, received the life insurance money. So is it is it possible that J. Frank Norris pushed his father-in-law off a train for the insurance money to get the cash that he needed to buy a newspaper to publicly bash the big fancy Southern Baptist guy who was pissed at him for stealing his church members? There's no evidence saying that he did, but I would personally say that this would fit a pattern of behavior that is exhibited by Norris, as we will discuss later in this episode and in next week's episode. Stay tuned for that. How many separate texts that simply said, holy sh**, holy sh**, holy sh**, did I send you when I found this? Oh, it was many. It was it was numerous. It was a few. Yeah, it was, it was more than a few. No, it's just like everything to do with this episode when we were doing the research for this episode was just us finding out more and more and more crazy stuff. I just think it's funny how... J. Frank Norris is always like his proximity to serious crimes is always very high, but he's never like directly implicated. Or if he is, he seems to get away a lot. Yeah, he's constantly crime adjacent because this happened in 1906 and there will be very few years until like 1926 that he is not accused of a crime. However, he got the money. Norris took on the job of editor of the Baptist Standard newspaper. He had bought not control of the entire paper, but he had bought a controlling stake in the paper. Immediately, he reached out to Samuel Hayden of the Haydenites, who owned the rival newspaper, the Texas Baptist and Herald. So Norris owns a stake in the newspaper that used to be owned by Cranfield, who is the guy that got in a gunfight with Hayden in the train bathroom. Then he called Hayden and bought out his entire paper for 30,000 bucks. Then... He reached out to Cranville, who had left the Baptist Standard and started a new publication called the Baptist Tribune, and he bought the Texas he bought the Baptist Tribune as well. So he's just turned himself into one of the most influential pastors in Texas by creating himself a media empire of all of the Baptist newsletters. He merged, he like hostile takeover and merged the three biggest Baptist publications in Texas, effectively ending the Texas Baptist newspaper wars. He publicly stated that he did it because he was tired of the destructive tendencies in Baptist publications. I'm tired of all of you tearing each other down. We ought to be united for the gospel. What he had actually done was consolidate every large Baptist publication in Texas under his own personal power. 
And these newsletters are actually really influential when it comes to the Southern Baptist Convention. So he's mm-hmm. suddenly become very powerful. These heavily, the, the so- Southern Baptist Convention was based in Dallas. That was their denominational headquarters. And Texan Baptists were a major, major voting vote, I don't know, voting block in the direction of the Southern Baptist Convention. This was denominational political power. He used his denominational political power to separate Baylor's former theology department where he had earned his bachelor's degree and so did many current and future presidents of the Southern Baptist Convention into a separate Southern Baptist theological seminary called Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Now, if if Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary really catches your attention, you're not alone, because Lester Roloff and Jack Hiles both attended Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And that school would not have existed as it does today without Norris's wielding of his denominational political power to cut Baylor's theology department off from the college and form Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. It really seems to me like his MO is just to erase any and all oversight over whatever it is that he is doing. Like any civilian, any institutional authority over himself is a power that needs to be either eradicated or a power that he needs to be able to like sidestep and get out of under the umbrella of, if that makes sense. That's how it seems to me. That's how I'm reading this. Yes. But if possible, he'd rather just be the guy in power. He, we know so little about Norris's internal life or his motivations. We know what he said. We know what happened in court. We know what people who knew him said about him. But he's kind of very similar to Jack Scop also, or even when Jack Hiles said, like, a husband and wife shouldn't be too emotionally intimate with each other. It's that vibe because there are so few people who can speak to what was he thinking, what were his intentions, what was his motivation, because he simply didn't tell people what his motivations were, which is why I think the comparison with like a 20s mobster is a very accurate comparison to make about him. Yeah. And it's like the the book that was written about him by his friend was really written by him. So that just goes to show how little he trusts the people around him. Yeah. And, but that book is mostly comprised of things that he said, quotes from things that he said in public, usually from behind a pulpit. But there's very little like, this is how he was in private. Yeah. His, we know so much about his, his public life and his public influence. And we know so little about his private life, but it certainly seems like he was that he saw himself as the rising star of the Southern Baptist Convention, a future convention president, a future pastor of the largest churches in the Southern Baptist Convention, which he did become. It it really feels like he saw himself that way from the beginning. So when he was still editor of the Baptist Standard, he was no stranger to unconventional tactics when it came to bringing in a crowd. I'm going to talk about some of his wild sermon titles in a minute, and I think you'll really enjoy those. 
As editor of the Baptist Standard, he led subscription drives that were incredibly successful. He offered items such as razors, fountain pens, portraits of Baptist leaders, and even a sewing machine for people who sent in a certain number of new subscriptions. Which leads me to ask, did J. Frank Norris kind of invent the spring program? I mean, if he'd been around 50 years later, then maybe he would have been throwing filet of fish out of a helicopter like Jack Hiles was. Like, this is clearly conceptually related to you get a watch if you bring 25 visitors to church. Like, Norris said, you get a sewing machine if you send me 30 new subscriptions. And then literally... Uh, 70 years later, Hiles is saying you get a watch if you bring 25 people to church. And David Hiles is saying you get a brand new car if you bring X number of visitors and so on and so on throughout Baptist history, you know, independent Baptist history since then. Speaking of things that are now mainstays in evangelical Christian culture that possibly were invented by J. Frank Norris, I need to ask the question, did J. Frank Norris invent christian zionism that's a that's a fair question bud i was fully freaking out when i found this this is the one i texted i would just like this is the one that you text so this entire like the entire research phase for this episode has been really long because i'm not only chugging my way through two books but we also you'll see in our source list we have like dozens of sources the entire process has been me and gavi texting back and forth to each other holy dude in all caps and it's because we found something new about j frank noise so christian zionism is a broad term that we use to describe the phenomenon of evangelicals going to great lengths to show their support for israel this can include behaviors such as purchasing israeli products donating money to pro-israel causes and supporting pro-israel political candidates however rather than primarily being motivated by like a rational political ideology or a set of foreign policy priorities or or genuinely supporting the safety of the Jewish people or even supporting a desire for the situation over there to be resolved in a manner that is conducive to a sustained era of peace where everyone's happy. Christian Zionism is defined primarily by its motivation being related in some way to like end times theology and eschatology. So the rise of Israel to power in some way or another is one of the fixed points that they can use to solve for X to tell when Jesus is coming back and when the rapture is going to happen. It will use all sorts of pro-Israel rhetoric and talking points, but you dig a single layer below the surface and it's all about dot, dot, dots so that Jesus can come back. Yeah, so I'm going to do a little bit of a dive into history, a little bit of like a a speed run, if you will. Love it. Okay. So in 1917, after the end of the First World War and the fall of the Ottoman Empire, Ottoman Palestine was taken over by the British. The UK's foreign secretary was a man named Arthur Balfour, and he signed a declaration that within the borders of the region would be created a nation state for the Jews. This was controversial. Um, Supporters included both Jews and anti-Semites. The the Jews who supported this wanted a nation state for themselves, and the anti-Semites had seen a rising tide of... Jewish immigration to Britain following the pogroms in the Russian Empire and and Eastern Europe and wanted 
these immigrants basically to go anywhere else. And detractors included some Jews and also some anti-Semites as well. Um, so the detractors included some Jews who felt that this policy would forever tar Jews living in Palestine with the label of foreign invaders, regardless of any historical connection to the land. And the anti-Semites felt that this would be a policy that would be beneficial to the Jews and they didn't want it because they hated Jews. The local Arab population of the region really wasn't consulted in any way whatsoever, and the Arabs were the majority population, and they weren't really consulted about this at all. Ironically, the British support for the Jewish state didn't actually allow for the unlimited immigration that its supporters wanted. Over much of the lifespan of the mandate, the British actually limited Jewish immigration to the region most egregiously during and, and directly preceding World War II when Jews fleeing Nazi Germany were restricted from emigrating to Palestine. So in 1945, following the defeat of the Nazis by the Allies, the British announced an end to the British rule over mandatory Palestine, which would take place in three years. At the time... Europe was still dealing with a refugee crisis following the war, and hundreds of thousands of Jews who had survived the Holocaust were restricted from basically emigrating anywhere because Britain, Canada, the United States basically just didn't want them. And ones that went back to like Poland or Ukraine were often, you know, persecuted or even murdered by their neighbors. Meanwhile, in Palestine, uh, violence and tensions were growing between the Jewish population and the Arab population. And it was starting to bubble over into a civil war. In 1947, the newly formed United Nations convened and decided to divide the land up into a Jewish state and an Arab state based mostly around what populations were living in what area at the time. Um, most of the Jews, including their leader, uh, David Ben-Gurion, supported this plan, while many more extreme paramilitary factions were against it because they felt that it was a compromise and they felt that they had been entitled by the British mandate to all of the land. For the most part, the Arabs rejected this plan because they saw the influx of Jewish immigration as imperialism and because up to this point, they'd never been involved in any of the decision making of this process ever at all in any way whatsoever. The partition plan was to come for a vote in front of the United Nations in November of 1947. On October 2nd of 1947, J. Frank Norris wrote a letter to United States President Harry Truman in support of the partition plan, making arguments of both a religious nature, quoting scripture verses of God promising, quote, all of the land to the Jews, as well as making political arguments about the Jews needing security, um, but then going on to, I think most interestingly, make the argument that because the Arabs had taken the side of the Axis powers in World War II and because they were taking the side of the Soviets in the Cold War, that the U.S. should therefore support the Jews against the Arabs. So this is very interesting to me uh, that he would make this argument because as we're going to discuss in just a few minutes, J. Frank Norris was clanned up. This guy was extremely friendly with the Ku Klux Klan. I don't know if he was a Klan member, 
but he was i i would say near enough as makes no difference like you cannot consider this man to be a friend of the jewish people in any way What's wilder is that J. Frank Norris received a letter back from President Truman less than a week later, and this letter kind of made it clear that there was a regular correspondence going on between them. So I'm going to read this letter to you. And so this is what President Truman wrote back. He wrote, Dear Dr. Norris, I am most grateful for your thoughtful letter of October 2nd. I deeply appreciate having the benefit of this expression of your views because I know that you have given long and extensive study to the Jewish-Palestinian question. Very sincerely yours, President Harry Truman. I would also like to note that in his official biography, it stated that Norris was asked by the Truman administration to please provide his opinion on this. It's also it's also worth noting that Norris was credited for Herbert Hoover's win in Texas, and literally he has been credited by secular historians for turning Texas Republican. So it's interesting that this is very strongly claimed that Democratic President Truman solicited his opinion, but maybe that's not, maybe it, it's not implausible. It's just an interesting connection. Well, the way that Norris's first letter to Truman was written, it made it seem like that. It made it seem like Truman sent him kind of like on a mission over there to scope it out and see what the situation was and report back to him to say, this is what you should do. Yes. I think that the letter coming back, rather than saying, you are the person who influenced me to make this decision, is more... Rather than that, I think it's more Truman saying, this is the direction we're going with our policy and basically giving Norris his assurances that his wishes would be fulfilled, but not that, like, you are the guy that made me make this decision. Like, I think that Truman probably had a lot of other people also advising him on this, but I don't think that Norris's opinion on the matter would have been seen as inconsequential. So I think the fundy assumptions of how influential this was might be a little overblown, but they're not completely out of sorts when they say J. Frank Norris had this influence on President Truman to make this decision. It just might be a little bit overstated. Yeah, um, we'll talk about this maybe a little bit toward a little bit later towards the end of this episode. But but Norris did go on legitimate political trips. He was invited by Winston Churchill to see the damage from the bombing of London in 1941. I, you know, I can't say whether Truman, yeah, like, did Truman really solicit his opinion on this? That's not for me to speculate. That seems maybe a bit overblown, but it's, what's not overblown is Norris's importance. He, he really was that big of a deal to Christian fundamentalists. It's not implausible that Truman really did ask him, what What do you think, to to gauge the opinions of, of fundamentalists in America, the rapidly growing group of fundamentalists in America. Right, because if Truman goes to Norris and says, what do you think about this? And Truman and Norris replies to Truman and says, I like this policy decision. And that's the policy decision that Truman is going to go with. He knows that if he makes that policy decision, that he's not going to lose any standing with fundamentalists or evangelical voters who I mm -hmm. guess are pretty powerful, especially in Texas. 
I think what is important to note when we're talking about Norris's opinions on Israel and Palestine and how he may have shaped policy, it's it's important to note that Norris was very famous, very influential, and far from apolitical. So on November 29th, 1947, the United Nations voted on the partition plan, and this plan was passed 33 in favor, 13 against, with 10 countries abstaining. The votes against mostly came from Arab nations. Six months later, when the British-Palestinian mandate officially ended, David Ben-Gurion declared the independence of the state of Israel within the borders of the UN-approved partition. The U.S. then became the first nation to officially recognize Israel as a sovereign nation just 11 minutes after David Ben-Gurion's declaration. Yes, and that is that recognition just 11 minutes later, that whole thing is a huge deal in Fundy lore, just so you're aware. Is the 11 minutes like significant? Is there like a, a numerological significance to the number 11? No, it's the fact that America was the first because one has special numerological value. So I found a couple of fundamentalist websites that told the story in a manner that suggests that Norris was the one who convinced Harry Truman to support the partition and to recognize Israel. I personally doubt that this is true because Truman had a lot of people advising him on this issue, and his response to Norris's letter reads to me like his decision had already been made before receiving the letter and that he was merely indicating to Norris which way he would go. I gathered from Norris's letter that Truman, like his letter to Truman, that they had a regular correspondence, which given everything that I know about J. Frank Norris is just wild to think about that this guy had any correspondence with a sitting U.S. president. However, the reason why we bring this story up now isn't just to show that Norris had political influence. It's to show where Norris's head was at by this time and the reasons for what that change may have been. Because it, it, (laughs) Right, because it doesn't make sense for a Klan-associated pastor to be a prominent voice in Christian Zionism without some ulterior motive, because this dude is clanned up for sure. I don't know if he was a member, but he was just so closely affiliated with the Klan that he might as well have been, and it doesn't make sense for him to be pro-Jewish or pro-Israel in any way without some ulterior motive. And I looked into this not because I was curious about this, and I was able to find two likely reasons. The first is that J. Frank Norris believed in a premillennial pre-tribulation rapture, and he had a word-for-word literal interpretation of the Bible, including the Book of Revelations. So in 1934, he had a broadcast debate with a different fundamentalist minister about premillennialism, and as we will no doubt delve into at a later date, the rise of Israel and the independence of Israel as a nation-state is a vital part of fundamentalist end times eschatology. So if you grew up around this sort of thing, you will know that when people are trying to predict the rapture, they will plug in the date of Israel's independence as like one of their fixed dates and use that to like try to solve for X for the events prophesied in the book of Revelations. So the second possible reason for this shift is that by 1947, J. Frank Norris viewed communists not Jews, as the primary evil and the way that Satan did work in the world. Communists, not Jews, not Catholics. You ever see an IFB church website and it says, King James 1611 inspired and preserved premillennial pre-trib rapture? 
And like premillennial and pre-trib rapture are two things that go high, high on the list of things that are most important to this church. Like if they only have five or 10 doctrinal stances on their website, premillennial pre-trib is in there. It's that important. Norris is a, is a big part of why that happened. Just like with the inspired and preserved King James Bible thing, the, the prevailing IFB doctrine of now is most influenced by Norris Ruckman and John R. Rice. He is also not the creator, but one of the major founders of the prevailing current IFB doctrine on premillennialism and pre-tribulation rapture. So I guess that connects him to Stephen Anderson also. Unlike Stephen Anderson, however, by this point in his life at least, Norris had spoken against anti-Semitism somehow, which is it's very surprising to me just considering how in bed with the Klan he was throughout his preaching career. Um, so Norris wrote in 1937, I confess my amazement that certain intelligent and outstanding fundamentalist pastors have joined this age-long and divinely cursed persecution. And he's referencing anti-Semitism when he's talking about that. Wow. That's a turn. And this worldview that he had in by 1937 and by the 1940s was not universal at the time. Many of his fundamentalist contemporaries were, as he was, very clan affiliated. But Norris' position on both Israel and communism became the dominant fundamentalism view even to this day. So later in life, and this is wild to see also, just considering of what's coming next in the story— Norris also reversed his decision on Catholicism, viewing it as the last chance to save the world from communism. Like Norris believed that communism was more dangerous than Catholicism. Yeah, I'm I'm going to talk about so his anti-Catholic sentiment is going to come up throughout the rest of this episode and also in next episode where we talk about his murder trial, his views on Catholics are actually kind of a major part of that. However, Towards the end of his life, he had an audience with the Pope, like a positive, I want to meet the Pope. And what he said to the Pope was, basically, I used to really hate Catholics, but now I've realized that communism is much more of a danger. And the Catholics are the only religious group strong enough to stand against communism and save the world from communism. So now I want to be buds with the Catholics. Imagine if Alberto heard this. Because he, he's like, the Catholics and the communists are the same. <laughs> I know, but but John R. Rice also like was taking major heat at this time for ecum- ecumenicalism and not hating Catholics enough. So make it make sense, fundies. My big takeaway from this is that I think we've found the connection between like Nazism and the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and the Satanic Panic later. I think that it's like McCarthyism and yeah. and like anti-communism. And I think we've found the string that we're going to have to pull to, to research that. So I think this is a good place. Let's take the offering break. We're going to jump back into the chronological history of Norris around 1909. And this is uh, where we get into the arson. So that's going to be fun when we get back from the offering break. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. 
Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, Sadie here. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode 57. It's a primer episode for new listeners. That episode tells my personal story and gives you all the terms and information that you'll need to know going forward. Also, check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism, so that you can get the whole cult story. If you like our show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, as well as other bonus content available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, that group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. We are back from our break. We have talked about much of the early life of J. Frank Norris, as well as much of the influence that he has had on certain doctrines within fundamentalism and, and even within broader Christian evangelism as a whole. Um, so what are we going to jump back in to pick up his life story around 1909 about? He had resigned his first pastorate in Dallas after stealing all of G.W. Truett's members to become the editor of the Baptist Standard. He had consolidated the power of a large readership, about 70,000 subscriptions, behind one single newspaper with himself as the editor. And he was riding high on this wave. He wrote an expose on the evils of racetrack gambling. He used very like emotional stories of mothers whose children had been driven to desperation by the money that they lost betting on racetrack, like horse, horse race gambling. And he and his editorial played a major part in getting racetrack gambling banned in the entire state of Texas for the next 25 years. So he he wielded power within the Southern Baptist Convention, but he wielded political power beyond that because of the percentage of residents of Texas that read and believed these Baptist newspapers and were committed to Norris and his causes. I think this may have given him a taste of real power that he then spent years trying to taste again while fighting in favor of prohibition. Because think about it, he took on a major vice and he won. And I think this was really formative to him. He sold his interests in the Baptist Standard in 1909, and he took a cushy job as the pastor of First Baptist Church of Fort Worth, eventually becoming one of the highest paid pastors in the United States, probably the highest paid pastor in the United States at the time in 1909. And this is 
so similar to Heil's story of, I took over the pastorate at First Baptist Church of Hammond. They were all very highbrow, highfalutin people. There was a lot of money in the church. There were a lot of bankers, store owners, that kind of manufacturing magnates in this church. But while he while he was pastoring this very highfalutin or organ and choral style Southern Baptist church, the Wild West environment of Fort Worth at the time gave him plenty of vices to yell about from the pulpit. Most notably, everything that occurred in the part of town known as Hell's Half Acre, which was a collection of bars, brothels, and gambling houses in Fort Worth at the time. Norris preached sermons with titles like the following. If Jim Jeffries, the Chicago Cubs, and Theodore Roosevelt can't come back, who can? As a side note, this is referring to Jim Jeffries, the early 1900s world heavyweight champion boxer, not Jim Jeffries, the current Australian comedian, just so we're all on the same page here. And I'm assuming that who can is referring to Jesus can come back. I'm not really quite sure, but that makes the most sense. He also preached a sermon, and this is my favorite Norris sermon title of all time. This is the sermon title. Should a prominent Fort Worth banker buy expensive silk stockings for another man's wife? In a God-honoring way? (laughs) (laughs) That That was his sermon title. So here's what he would do. He would every Sunday night, so Sunday morning, he would preach like more standard topics. He'd preach about faith or he'd preach about, you know, what biblical truths can we learn about the current situation in China right now? Or, you know, we should preach a sermon about prayer, preach a sermon about God's light, were his Sunday morning topics. But on Sunday night, Every week he would preach one of these incredibly provocative titles. And it was, he might have also invented clickbait because <laughs> in the case of the first title I read, if Jem Jeffries, the Chicago Cubs and Theodore Roosevelt can't come back, who can? It, it was it was theological. He, you know, it was clickbait. Now, in the case of should a prominent Fort Worth banker buy expensive silk stockings for another man's wife, he fully had the intention of naming and shaming a church member of his who had gotten tattled on by another church member of his for buying silk stockings for another man's wife. And this trend of doing the, like the boring sermon on prayer on Sunday morning and then doing like pulling out all the crazy on Sunday night. That's a thing that still, they they still do that. Um, The only people who, who preach the provocative stuff on Sunday morning are like NIFB nut jobs, like Steven Anderson. So what he would do is he had a huge, changeable sign outside the church building and he would put up these sermon titles ahead of time and it was advertisement people would come in on sunday night for entertainment this strategy of having the the really bombastic and provocative titles on sunday nights did not go over very well with norris's rich church members he he was accused of ruining their church by bringing in a lower crowd lower class crowd with his sensational sermon titles and his bombastic style and this sounds familiar doesn't it yes norris is quoted as saying i would rather have my church filled with the poor the halt the lame the sinning than have it filled and run by a highbrow bunch i'll take the bus kids <coughs> his church actually split 
over this remark and similar remarks that he made. But Norris caused real trouble outside his own congregation when he started naming names and pointing fingers at businessmen in town who were funding liquor interests and gambling halls and other vices like sex work in Hell's Half Acre. So this is when Norris caught the attention of the current mayor of Fort Worth, W.D. Davis. In the summer of 1911, Norris was campaigning for an upcoming vote on whether to enact alcohol prohibition in Tarrant County, making it a dry county even before nationwide prohibition was passed in 1919. Norris held a massive three-month tent revival, preaching nightly about the horrors that alcohol had inflicted on his family and so many others. The mayor, Davis, sent the police and fire department to take the tent down by force, calling it a fire hazard, although it more likely had to do with Norris's anti-alcohol political stances and his attempt to actually influence the upcoming vote, which at the time, I guess, wasn't technically illegal because the IRS wasn't a thing yet. So in January of 1912, as Norris continued to be extremely politically active, naming names and printing articles in his new newspaper called The X-Ray, local businessmen convened in a city hall meeting to figure out what to do with J. Frank Norris. And this uh, this one was still, it's still not appropriate to call it a public hanging because like this is a place and time where people were actually getting lynched. So I don't, I really want to be careful about not appropriating that terminology, but this is actually an event where Norris could have gotten you know, run out of town on a rail. Um, this meeting, you can see um, quotes from the flyers that were passed out to invite people to this meeting. No women and no men under 21. They were pretty serious about this January 1912. We got to get rid of this guy, Fort Worth City Hall meeting. On January 11th, so we know that meeting was real. Here's where we get into what might not be so real. <laughs> On January 11th, 1912, a few hours after choir practice had wrapped up at First Baptist Church, a fire broke out near the church organ. Firefighters were able to put out the fire, and a church official was on site to save some important documents. The fire was blamed on an electrical issue in the church organ. Notably, J. Frank Norris really liked piano music and really hated organ music. Also notably, insurance was able to cover the entire damage to the building, but the organ was never fixed or replaced. That's a little suspicious. Just interesting. The coincidence, I suppose. The very next Sunday, Norris was in his office working late after the Sunday night church service when two shots were fired into his office in an apparent assassination attempt. Wait, so they, so they shot at his office? Like from the outside, like they they didn't come in to try to shoot at him. That's a, a guy. A guy. So hmm. somebody. Did they see who? Uh, some people saw like a guy in a trench coat skulking around the back of the building. There were definitely shots fired into his office. Uh, neither one of them came close to hitting. Well, one of them like went by his head and sunk into like the bookcase behind his head. This is uh, so. so the shots were real. Somebody definitely shot into his office. Mm. What we don't know is who 
or who told them to did maybe a certain preacher who really wanted to be notorious and had a persecution complex tell one of his church members to fake an assassination attempt and please miss. Or maybe it was just him. Maybe he just like went outside of the... (laughs) I mean, maybe he had a secret door in and out of his office. He could disappear out of and... (laughs) even consider that but it's absolutely possible like he just hides the coat in his closet and says don't look in there <laughs> he <laughs> just, went that way he's that way run away don't look in my coat closet in my office there's definitely not a trench coat and a gun in there i mean he did keep a gun in his desk as we're going to talk about later like he kept that thing on him at all times <laughs> he kept it in, according to norris he never kept it on his person it was always in a desk drawer according to norris So after this first fire and assassination attempt, threatening notes were sent to G.H. Connell, who was a member of Norris's church and the chairman of the church financial committee. Just keep that in mind. That's going to come back. Norris claimed that he was also receiving threats via mysterious letters. Keep that in mind also, because that's going to come back. Less than a month later, on February 4th, 1912, the church building went up in flames again, and this time it burned to the ground. On the same evening of February 4th, 1912, the parsonage, five blocks away, was in grave danger of burning as well. A sack soaked in oil and bundles of paper had been lit on fire on the back porch. But the parsonage fire was able to be extinguished by Norris, with only a few rooms having some smoke damage, as Norris had saved large water receptacles in the kitchen just in case the pipes froze overnight. Wow. That's convenient. There was a a bad, there was a a half-ass attempt at arson at my house the the same night that my church building burned down, but I was able to put it out because I had some big pots of water in my kitchen in case, so we would be able to have drinking water if the pipes froze. Now, I have saved water in my kitchen in case the pipes froze before, but I've also never set my own back porch on fire. (laughs) So it turns out that the threatening notes that were sent to J. Frank Norris were burned in the church fire. Oh no, lost the evidence. So sad. But G.H. Connell, the financial secretary, still had the notes that he had received, threatening notes that he had received in the mail. So he turned those notes into the postmaster general in hopes that they could identify who sent them and possibly who had set the fire. So a grand jury was was convened in order to investigate the arson of the church because it was clearly arson that First Baptist Church had burned down and it was obviously arson at J. Frank Norris's parsonage because like that's a fire that somebody set. It's not an accident. Well, during this grand jury hearing, a few relevant details came came to light and came to the surface that must now be addressed. Did he ever give like an apology sermon while he had laundry going? So first Norris was brought to the stand and he was asked, do you know who sent these threatening letters? And of course Norris said, no, I don't know who sent these threatening letters. Other evidence was presented that showed that Norris had been bugging his financial committee about building a new, bigger church building, and the financial committee was not particularly open to this idea. This all 
led to Norris being indicted for perjury. The charge was that he had written the threatening letters to Connell himself to influence him to let Norris build a bigger church building. And then when Connell said no, Norris had lit the fire to burn down the church building so that they would get the insurance money and then they would just have to build a new bigger church building. Norris was indicted for the perjury and not the arson yet. He was released on a $1,000 bond on the evening of March 1st. And just a few hours later, the newly renovated and repaired Norris Parsonage was on fire again. Oh no, how not suspicious. This time, and this is kind of where he, this is really f***ed up because they almost didn't make it out. His family almost didn't make it out. So this time, the Norris family found it harder to escape. The staircase was engulfed in flames and the roof was covered in ice from an unusual Fort Worth ice storm. A neighbor came to their rescue and the family were able to climb out an upstairs window. So you go out the window over like a peak of the icy roof and then climb down the ladder to safety. Uh, Mrs. Norris fainted as soon as she reached the ground. This poor woman, the house with her three children in it has gone up in flames twice in a month. Her husband's church building has been burned down. Her husband is now being indicted for perjury. This poor woman, Oh my God, Lillian Norris is, I don't even know if I hate her. I, I kind of feel like she's badass. <laughs> Unfortunately, the newly renovated and repaired Norris Parsonage was a- unable to be saved and also burnt to the ground. By this point, Norris, like his father-in-law previously, was suffering from nervous exhaustion and was on the verge of a mental breakdown. He offered his resignation to the church over all of this drama, but the church refused to accept his resignation. So he planned instead to go spend some time with a doctor friend near his hometown who had recently opened a sanitarium at a natural hot springs. It's really interesting that the modern IFB is so incredibly against any kind of mental health care, even admitting depression or anxiety is very taboo and doubly so for men. This wasn't the case back in the day. And I think if the modern IFB wants to return to the old paths, they should return to the old path of just getting mental health help when you need it. Unfortunately, Norris was not able to get the mental health care treatment that he signed up for. Because as his train pulled into the station where he would get off the train and then go to the sanitarium, he was informed by reporters at the station that he had now been indicted for arson as well as perjury and he had to get back to Fort Worth immediately. So he literally just walked off one train, got on another train, went back to Fort Worth. I'm sorry, that's that's technically incorrect. He walked off the train, he was able to see his doctor for a few hours, and then he got on the next train back to Fort Worth. I want to be accurate. (laughs) So he went back to Fort Worth because now he's being tried for, indicted for arson. During that arson trial, the fire marshal brought half a torn piece, like a, a torn half sheet of blank paper. And this was introduced into evidence. The fire marshal had found this torn half sheet of paper in a jacket pocket in the Norris bedroom after the house was burned. This half piece of paper exactly matched the torn half sheet of paper that had been sent to Connell with a threatening note. Oh. Norris. He wrote it. Wrote He wrote the threatening notes before the fire. <laughs> he did it. It is absolutely proof positive he did it. 
A woman who worked for the church testified at this grand jury that Norris had handed her stacks of anonymous letters with instructions to mail them only when he was out of town in Austin so that he, he could prove that he didn't mail them. <laughs> so this was looking extremely bad for Norris on the count of perjury. Like, dude, it's 19 what? 1911, 1912, and you can't get away with mailing an anonymous letter? He was good at influencing people. He was not so good at doing crimes. You would think with the amount of practice that he had doing crimes, he would have gotten better at it, but he did not. <sighs> so it was not looking good for him on the count of perjury because he had sworn in court, in sworn testimony, that he did not know who had written the threatening letters. Several highly paid handwriting analysts gave testimony for the prosecution that the handwriting in these threatening letters was indeed Norris's handwriting. But the defense hired one amateur handwriting analysis analyst. Wait, so he's just like some f guy, like a like a buff, like just like what? a guy who is into handwriting analysis. And that one guy's testimony and a heart wrenching retelling from Norris's wife Lillian Gaddy Norris about the night of the second parsonage fire turned the jury's sympathy. And Norris was found not guilty of both the perjury and the arson. And now he can say they came after the man of God and they failed. It's He was such a showman. Wow. He just... And this is why I think like the Jack Scop comparison is also one that has to be pulled in here. And even, but even Brittany Dawn, these are people that know how to prey on the sympathies of others. They are just naturally born charismatic, born magnetic personalities, and they just know how to get people. And throughout his life, we will see him just getting people over and over and over and over again. Man. So Oof. this incident of being found not guilty of perjury and arson in one of the particular fires, and I'm not sure which one it was, I apologize, began several years of trials and indictments. The first fire at the parsonage was investigated. The first fire at the church that was blamed on the organ was investigated. All of the insurance money that Norris got from all these different fires was investigated, but he somehow escaped being found guilty during any of these trials. And my, I don't, obviously you can't know why a jury member votes to convict or votes to acquit a person. This is a, a closed jury deliberation over a hundred years ago. There's no way I could know, but I think Norris was in such bad favor with city leadership. The mayor had a beef with him. The police chief had a beef with him. The city manager had a beef with him. Everybody had an issue with this guy that was unrelated to the perjury or the arson. The mayor published in the newspaper if anybody can prove that Norris didn't set this fire at his own church, I'll give you a thousand dollars. So while he probably did burn his own church building down and endanger his family by burning the parsonage down and definitely did perjure himself and write forged threatening letters to himself and members of his congregation, 
it appeared to be persecution because everybody knew that the mayor hated him and everybody knew that city government hated him and people were willing to believe Norris's story. Like Norris had proof that these high powered men in city government had financial stake in Hell's Half Acre. And the people that would have been on a jury might have been people who lost money gambling in Hell's Half Acre or got too drunk in Hell's Half Acre or their family members got in over their heads in this vice industry in Fort Worth at the time. And maybe they on some level agreed with Norris that this vice industry was a bad thing for the city. And Norris had actual proof the truth that these high powered men in city government not only didn't care about the vice industry and Hell's Half Acre, but were financially benefiting from it. The people who were on the jury were willing to believe that Norris was being persecuted for standing up against vice, and it made them more likely to overlook and excuse Norris's actual crimes of arson and perjury. Does that make sense? I think this is how these all these acquittals happened. Yeah, that's how all these, because Norris was sticking it to the man and they didn't really care if he did arson or perjury to stick it to the man because these, these city officials were actually doing something that we would now consider unethical or even illegal. Many of, of Norris's church members also believed that this was pers religious persecution because he was on the right path standing up against vice. But many of his more wealthy church members didn't enjoy the controversy. The church still grew, but as Norris eventually built a new auditorium and expanded his auditorium to hold a crowd eventually of 5,000 people, church membership also suffered several painful splits. Norris just bulldozed through all of this controversy, continuing to preach his flashy, finger-pointing sermons every Sunday night. And as the list of people who had had Norris's finger pointed at them got longer and longer, Norris became more and more controversial. So Norris's history of controversy and clout chasing is what led to his eventual murder trial. But before we get to his murder trial. We need to take a little chronological sidebar to talk about his connections to the KKK. Yes. So earlier in the episode, we mentioned Norris's alleged ties to the Ku Klux Klan. It's worth noting that during the revival of the Ku Klux Klan, which started in 1915, there were many fundamentalist pastors that had close ties to the Klan. The Klan was outspokenly anti-Black, anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant, anti-Semitic, anti-evolution, anti-modernist, anti-communist, all those things, as well as being pro-Christian nationalism, specifically white Protestant Christianity and, and white Protestant Christian nationalism. So fundamentalist theology, specifically doctrines on Christian dominionism, uh, doctrines on the curse of Ham, doctrines like the, the biblical literalist view of the creation of the world, um, as well as the anti-Semitic uh, uh, conspiracy theories involved with the protocols of, of the elders of Zion and how that involved with the book of Revelations made it so that anti-Semitic groups like the KKK, Christian fundamentalism would be a breeding ground. Um, 
for clan friendly sentiments and it made the kkk and these fundamentalist believers and fundamentalist pastors natural allies the clan also wielded incredible political power especially in texas throughout the research for this episode i've dug up many state local and federal politicians from texas from this era um, and and one specifically from Fort Worth, from Tarrant County, that were either openly members of the Ku Klux Klan or they were widely speculated to be members of the KKK. However, J. Frank Norris went, I think, much further than just preaching on issues that were Klan friendly issues or like tacitly endorsing their policy positions without providing material aid to their organization. Norris openly supported the Klan, and the Klan openly supported Norris. During a Valentine's Day church service on February 13, 1922, two men who were wearing Klan robes presented J. Frank Norris with a bouquet of roses, affirming their organization's support for the pastor. The roses came with a card stating that the Klan stood for, and I quote, law and order and aid to the needy. The sermon Norris gave following this presentation of roses to him by the Klan was on the subject of the need for law enforcement to crack down on bootleggers and dope peddlers. And for those that don't know the subtext of this, during this time in history, bootlegging was associated with the Irish and the Italians, so basically the Catholics, and heroin was associated with black people. So basically this sermon was a big dog whistle sermon about cracking down on black people and Catholic. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. In 1924, a Klan meeting hall in Fort Worth was burned down after a homemade explosive device was dropped on it from an airplane. Oh, no. So sad. Yeah. Oh, no. Anyway, this crime was never solved. Anyway, the local Klan chapter, they, they were left without a place to meet 
or fundraise. So J. Frank Norris invited them to perform a blackface minstrel show at his church auditorium. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, he did. That whole sentence just got it started bad and just got worse and worse and worse throughout the sentence so uh, it, it goes deeper too so norris had a deep relationship with the grand dragon of the ku klux klan of fort worth a man whose name was lp bloodworth the two met in 1909 when bloodworth was just 13 years old bloodworth's parents were members of a first baptist church of fort worth and Bloodworth's mother was the president of the Christian Women's Temperance Union of Fort Worth. So once again, it ties between the Klan and the, the temperance movement. In 1926, when Norris was indicted for the murder of Dexter Chips, which we're going to talk about next week, who he was a Catholic, um, Bloodworth announced publicly that the Ku Klux Klan was supporting Norris. And he said, and I quote, I have known him for 17 years. And in all that time, he has been an outstanding crusader for Protestant Christianity. Yeah, this Bloodworth guy is going to come back when I present all the research I did about Norris's actual murder trial. More than publicly supporting Norris in newspapers, Bloodworth also was invited up on stage to pray at Norris's church during the lead up to the trial. So it wasn't one sided like Bloodworth is supporting Norris. It's two sided. Norris is also leveraging his friendship with Bloodworth because being allied with the clan is Norris sees it as a positive thing. It was very a uh, politically expedient thing to be associated with the clan if you're a Christian fundamentalist minister in Fort Worth in the 1910s 1920s. I just like I just don't want there to be any excuse making for Norris because some people might misunderstand like oh, he was, you know, he didn't really believe this or he didn't really ally with the Klan on purpose. It was, it was just for political expediency. And that's not, that's not correct. He placed himself in relation to the Klan just as much as they wanted to support him and be vocally advocate, vocal advocates for him. In this uh, murder trial that we're going to talk about next week, Bloodworth alleged in his uh, endorsement and defense of Norris that Mayor Meacham, who was a Catholic, who was also involved in this case uh, due to his public feud with Norris, but he Bloodworth alleged that Mayor Meacham, who was a Catholic, had rigged a grand jury to indict Norris. Following Norris's acquittal, um, sorry, spoiler alert, uh, and after Bloodworth was no longer the grand dragon of the KKK, Norris ordained Bloodworth as an independent Baptist minister and hired him to teach Sunday school at his church. So this clan Norris clan Norris support back like it's a it's two sided. They they are supporting each other and they are in support of each other. And to say that he's just like tacitly accepting their support and not like condemning their support that no, he's like out here openly associating with these people and like strategizing with these people and inviting them to be involved with there's like a revolving door of norris's circle and the clan and it's the same people it's interesting that that norris ordained him as a minister because we remember we were talking about peter ruckman bragging about having been baptized by a deacon of norris's yes makes you wonder 
Jerry Falwell said, I was trained by men who were trained by J. Frank Norris. This is the kind of men who J. Frank Norris is training. Jerry Falwell also started his ministry because he was mad about desegregation happening. So the Klan context is really important. You know, we've talked about Norris's early years of pastorate and his early arson and perjury trials. And the murder trial happened in 1926. So we need to jump back to that missing segment of the timeline and talk about what happened between the arson trials and the murder trial. Go for it. So in the first part of this episode, I mentioned a guy named Samuel Hayden, the Haydenites. Norris was still very much allied with Hayden and the Haydenites, and he was vocally critical of the Southern Baptist denomination, although he was still a member of the denomination. He attended denominational conventions dressed to the nines. He was known as one of the most fashionable pastors in the SBC. He hobnobbed with the big shots, even as he was publishing newspaper articles critical of them and stealing members from their churches. He wrote a whole pamphlet about infidelity among the Southern Baptist Convention leaders. He didn't mean marital infidelity. What he, the pamphlet is about the leader's unfaithfulness to historical teachings of the Southern Baptist Convention and the rising wave of modernism in the 19-teens, which we've talked about elsewhere on the show. Norris described denominational leaders as trying to, quote, muzzle him or, quote, pop the whip, but he remained loyal to the convention. But out of the other side of his mouth, he also threatened to become even more of a moral crusader, and he did not hesitate to call out Southern Baptist leaders for what he perceived to be sinfulness or modernism. At the same time, he was forging alliances with men who would shortly become fundamentalist leaders. He held large Bible conferences, and he invited people like R.A. Torrey and William Bell Riley to speak at his large conferences. But while Norris had the gift of being able to make powerful alliances, it seems like he had trouble keeping those friends once he had made them. He had one example is he had a decades long friendship with G.B. Vick that finally fell apart, I think, in the 1940s. And G.B. Vick actually broke off from the Independent Fundamental Baptist movement at that point and founded the Baptist Bible Fellowship, which some of our listeners surely come from BBF. In 1919, the Southern Baptist Convention ran the $75 million campaign. This campaign was an effort to raise $75 million for worldwide missions. The convention asked each Southern Baptist church to contribute an amount that reflected the size of their membership. Norris was very pro-raising a bunch of money for worldwide missions, but he thought his church had been asked to raise too much. And if you think back to the first part of this episode, hmm. This makes sense because Norris's wild antics and multiple arrests and name and shame sermons and purposely attracting a commoner crowd had systematically run off the rich bankers and ranchers who had originally joined his church the preceding decade. So now he's got a massive crowd full of people in the, you know, the years leading up to the Great Depression who don't have money to give. And the convention is assigning him a certain amount of money that he's got to raise based on his membership. And he's got one of the biggest churches in Texas, but none of them have any money. Southern Baptist leaders wrote to each other that they would fix Norris and his lowbrow techniques at the next convention. 
multiple conventions, but these these fixes never really seem to work or work for long. Norris loudly proclaimed denominational loyalty. He took direct aim in print against a professor at Southern Methodist University who had written a book in favor of higher criticism. Now, the Methodists didn't really like this because they, they thought, why is this Southern Baptist guy in our business? But in response, Norris compared the heresy of higher criticism or what he believed to be the heresy of higher criticism to an outbreak of smallpox. His reasoning was, you're going to infect my people and my denomination with this. Um, he also mm. notably said in that in that quote that if a person has smallpox, they shouldn't be in a large gathering like a church, which makes me wonder what he would have said about COVID. Man, do you think uh, he would have been an anti-masker? Okay, so this is, this is the whole thing mm. about Norris. The IFB now is like very anti-mask, anti-vax, anti-science in a lot of different ways. They're also very much mental health denialists as well as being COVID denialists. And we've got J. Frank Norris on record being in favor of inpatient mental health treatment and in favor of preventing the spread of disease. Norris had all of these different like low-key beefs with the Southern Baptist Convention. Just... It was just kind of constant, but he saw himself more as I'm calling out the convention and making it more holy, not like the convention is bad and I want to get out of it. But eventually he crossed a line. He refused to use the Southern Baptist Convention's printed Sunday school curriculum, and he didn't just quietly put it aside and print his own. He didn't edit their curriculum because that wasn't his style. What he did instead was he proclaimed in his newspaper and in printed sermons and everywhere else that he had reach that his church had the God-given right to make the Bible their only textbook. So he's backhandedly accusing the Southern Baptist Convention of trying to usurp the Bible with their sun Sunday school curriculum. And that was not popular with the convention. <laughs> I can't imagine that it would be, no. Because, like, when he goes to convention meetings, he is a big shot. And the big shots that he's hanging out with are the guys who wrote that curriculum. But also saying, like, I the Bible is the only textbook that I need to read. That's so on brand for fundy things. Yeah, you really start to see how he is the granddaddy of all of it. No, like, all of this stuff that, like, all of the dumb that I hear fundy pastors say these days... It, it's like just hit, 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 like every single one. They're just recycling J. Frank Norris's greatest hits. This is so wild. So finally, it came to Norris's attention that a longtime professor at Southern Baptist Baylor had published a book with evolutionist teachings. Oh. And that's when Norris went off. According to Norris, he was not attacking the Southern Baptist Convention. He was attacking heresy. The professor at Baylor was fired because after Norris publicized this to the Four Winds, the convention had to fire the guy to save face and like not look like a bunch of evolutionists. But this was the beginning of the end for Norris and the SBC. This is where it became clear that they were just not meant to be together anymore. In the early 1920s, 
is when the relationship finally fell apart. Norris was censured by the Texas branch of the Southern Baptist Convention for, quote, wholesale method of the indiscriminate and destructive criticism of Baptist work and workers. What does this mean? You're you're criticizing everybody and making everybody else look bad. I mean, but if I'm a fundamentalist, then wouldn't I say, well, they're just not as pious as I am and they need to get better? Yes, unless you were J. Frank Norris, in which case your opinion would be, I know better than all of these people, and I think I'm a big enough man to single-handedly strong-arm the Southern Baptist Convention into a new era of fundamentalism preferably with me as the president. So he just bur- he just like pissed everyone off. Yeah, and I think he wanted to be president of the Southern Baptist Convention. But these are all but all the people that he burned bridges with are all the people that he would need on his side if he was actually going to become the president. Right, but he maybe didn't quite that maybe didn't quite compute for him. <laughs> it worked in Fort Worth that he could just like go after everybody. Yeah, and gain popularity. And as long as he had the little guy on his side, the people who were in the church pews on his side, he was powerful enough. So Norris at the time did not have an official position in Southern Baptist leadership, but he did have the largest church within the Southern Baptist Convention. In fact, one of the largest churches, if not the largest church in the United States of America at the time. So he thought that gave him the right to say whatever he wanted about the rest of the Southern Baptists and that they should kind of fall in line and do what he said because he was having more success than any of them. And the older, more refined Southern Baptists who were teetering on the edge between, this isn't the Southern Baptist Convention as we see it now, as a very conservative denomination. At the time, Southern Baptists would have been more, oh, a conservative-leaning, a moderately conservative denomination. So, and they were teetering on the edge of playing with the idea of maybe thinking about evolution. (laughs) That's wild to think about, though. The SBC. And of course, the denomination, yeah. And after, of course, after Norris's departure, the denomination kind of pendulum affected itself back to being a very conservative denomination all on its own. But Norris saw this, what he thought was moral weakness in the denomination, what he thought was infidelity to historic Baptist teachings. And he freaked out. And he just thought because he was the biggest shot with the biggest church and the best dressed pastor in the Southern Baptist Church and all of this, had his name in the newspaper, had his sermons published nationally, had a massively successful radio broadcast, had multiple successful newspapers. At one point, he had owned the largest Southern Baptist newspaper in the state of Texas. And he just looked at himself and he said, yeah, I'm the guy to fix this. And also, it's just a bit of like, nobody can with me. Like, yeah. what Like what? What are you going to do? The convention censured him for his criticism of Baptist work and workers, and then the County Association of Southern Baptists refused to give him a seat to attend the, ba- the Southern Baptist Convention. So he was not able to participate in the National Convention. And then while he was gone, the people who were at the convention led a constitutional amendment to the Southern Baptist convention constitution which prevented norris from rejoining the constitution the convention wow yeah it was a mass effort to kick him out like you know you're done like you can you can walk out or we can go get the bouncer you're done there was a period of several years of peace 
where Norris was not a member of the Southern Baptist Convention. His church could not claim to be a Southern Baptist church. He was forced to become independent because no convention would have him. But there was a um, a civil nature to his interactions with Southern Baptist people. Like he was still invited to preach, be a guest speaker at Southern Baptist meetings. He still had Southern Baptist leaders come preach in his church. Like they were, it was an amicable breakup at first, but then he attempted to rejoin the denomination in 1926 and they rejected him flat out. Like we can be friends, but we are never ever getting back together. <laughs> so before, during, and after his split from the Southern Baptist, he gained notoriety among fundamentalists by traveling and preaching all over the country. He published yet another newspaper. So the X-ray went away and he started publishing a newspaper called The Searchlight. The Searchlight notably had an illustration on the front cover of J. Frank Norris threatening the devil with a Bible in one hand and the devil cowering in the corner. That's <laughs> sick, honestly. Yeah, it's almost a chick precursor. <laughs> um, <laughs> And then he and he just made connections with well-known fundamentalists, um, a lot of whom ended up being part of the IFB heritage, but others of whom didn't, like J.B. Vick, as I said earlier, who founded the Baptist Bible Fellowship, and W.B. Riley, who, well, what was the organization he was the head of? Anyway, I'm not going to look it up now. I don't have time. <laughs> Norris was especially known for fighting against higher criticism, evolution, and anything that he branded as modernism. He was no longer a Southern Baptist, but he was still very much a Baptist, and he was completely committed to proclaiming fundamentalist Baptist beliefs. Norris didn't start the IFB, like the pseudo-denomination of loosely affiliated camps and churches that we now know as the IFB cult. He didn't start that, but he was kind of one of the first ones because of how the denomination forced him into not being a Southern Baptist, which by default made him an independent Baptist. Right. So the Southern Baptist convention started the IFB by kicking out J. Frank Norris. Yeah. I mean, you could say because that. There were, yeah, because wow. there were independent Baptist churches as long as there, as long as there's been Baptist churches, the Baptists have fought with each other and split off from each other and made independent churches. But J. Frank Norris was the first IFB, but he didn't really do it on purpose. It just kind of happened. Norris gained notoriety very much in the same way that people like Matt Walsh or Ben Shapiro gain notoriety today, which is having an opinion on everything um, and publishing that opinion and either getting people to agree with you or making people mad. He had an opinion on the Scopes Monkey Trial because this played in, in the court of higher criticism and evolution and modernism, which were very much his favorite pet peeves. <laughs> he didn't attend the Scopes Monkey Trial, weirdly. He was in Tennessee at the time it was going down, and he could have just gone to the trial, especially because William Jennings Bryan was a personal friend of Norris's and they had extensive cor correspondence between each other. That makes me respect Williams Jenning, William Jennings Bryan a lot less. <laughs> Honestly, knowing that it's, it's not odd. great. I mean, Norris hadn't killed anybody yet. Just the next summer that he killed somebody. Yeah, um, but like the the clan stuff, the uh, uh, not no. a good dude. No, the I guess we're gonna get to this later. The dude who said that, yeah, I hung around Norris. If he assaulted one woman, he assaulted a hundred women. Um, but that's coming later. Yeah. <sighs> so it's weird to me that he didn't go to the monkey trial because. He was 
friends with Brian. He could have showed up to support him. I don't know what was going on with that. But he was in correspondence with William Jennings Bryan during the time of the Scopes Monkey trial. They were sending letters back and forth. Norris received his last letter from Brian after he had already heard the news of Brian's death. And what do you think Norris did with that letter that he had received from the recently dead statesman, William Jennings Bryan? I've gotten a letter from William Jennings Bryan from beyond the grave, and it's telling me that Victor Nischik's <laughs> no, it's honestly is. like so much grosser than that. He published Brian's letter in his newspaper for clout. Oh God! Like, hey, this guy that's like super in the news right now. Guess what? We were friends, and he wrote me this letter. That's really gross. A firebrand fundamentalist clout chaser. He was known Man. for being unafraid to face legal consequences for standing up to the liquor guys. Like, that's his whole brand. This is giving Brittany Dawn for sure, though. Yes. That, like, <laughs> yes, Brittany Dawn and her brave, brave husband who went to Afghanistan to save the children. You know what else, else is? This is giving J-Rod. Uh, yes. Like uh, uh, taking smiling selfies with the family who just lost a child at, at the mm -hmm. kid's funeral. Like, mm -hmm. Funeral for sisters, like th that's what this is giving. Yes, Man, this is I and it's also like I said a second ago, it's giving Matt Walsh and it's giving Ben Shapiro because both of them, like Ben Shapiro, destroys the Barbie movie in forty whatever minutes. God, they, you get famous by having hot takes on things, and either people agree with you or or you make people really mad. The thing is that that was Norris's public persona, and we know so little about his private life, um, which is a little suspicious in and of itself. What we do know is that behind the scenes, on at least one occasion, Norris moved his traveling schedule to accommodate the vice in town. Really? So we're skipping down. Yeah, this, and this is a few years down the road. The 100th anniversary of Fort Worth in the year 1936 was going to be celebrated with a massive vaudeville, vaudeville show, nude dancers, lots of alcohol. Yeah, sign me up. Let's go. And this is like back in the day when they did like the fan dances, which is... Oh, like the burlesque kind of thing. Yeah. like Yeah. And it's a, a super um, interesting little niche of like sex work history. If you ever look into that, um, like the woman who became famous for nude or semi nude or simulated nude dancing in like early 1900s. It's I can't remember the woman's name who really popularized the whole thing, but it's a neat it's a it's an interesting tidbit. So there was this big out of town promoter who came into Fort Worth to do this show. And it's like having a music festival, right? Like you come in, you sell tickets, you sell overpriced drinks, you make a ton of money. Like that's what his plan was. But that guy knew Norris because he happened to have been one of the pallbearers for the guy that Norris killed in 1926. Oh, and he was also married to the mayor's daughter, which we are going to get to in a minute, how Norris knew the mayor. But this guy who was running the massive show, like the big promoter for the show, wrote Norris a letter and asked him if he could just happen to be out of town while this huge vaudeville show was going on. Because he was worried that Norris was going to run a rival revival like the same week or he was going to have his church members come out and protest the show. And he didn't want Norris 
and with his money. So he gets in touch with Norris and he says, hey, can you just be out of town? Can you just like let me have this one? And Norris said, sure, I'll move some stuff around. And he went on his revival tour for the summer early, so on purpose, so that he would be out of town during this guy's show and not with his money. That's like, why would he do that? I don't know. This is like, this is one of the weirdest things I turned up. You think some money changed hands? Uh, I wouldn't put it past J. Frank Norris. Like this, this dude is. Sure. I definitely wouldn't put it past him, but I don't know that money was Norris's main motivation because the fame and the influence seem to have been more of his primary motivation. And I wonder if the guy, if Norris, maybe the guy had some dirt on Norris that didn't come out during the murder trial and threatened to leak it. That would be my first hypothesis. My second hypothesis would be Norris 10 years older and in the fourth quarter of his life regretted how that murder trial had gone down. We're going to get into it in part two, like when we come back next week, um, the dirty tactics that were used by Norris to win this murder trial. And maybe Norris had lived long enough past it to really regret what he did and felt like he owed this guy something. That's true. And Norris did like re or, or change a lot of his positions on a lot of issues uh, later in life by this mm-hmm. time. I want to back up and look at Norris's narrative so far, because we've told a good bit of the story of his life up until the late 1930s. And it really sounds a lot like Jack Hiles' life story. Both were Texas megachurch builders who fought hard against the evils of alcohol because of their alcoholic abusive fathers. Both took a fancy rich church and ruined it by bringing in lower class people. Both utilized splashy sermon titles and entertaining tactics and both fought hard against the Southern Baptist Church. Both had problems with specifically with the Southern Baptist Church's Texas Sunday School curriculum. And of course, Hiles spoke very highly of Norris after Norris's death. Yeah, so I went looking for information about the influence that Norris had on Hiles. I mean, Hiles was very outspoken about how how much he really uh, admired J. Frank Norris. So I found a few interesting similarities between the two, in addition to the the ones that Sadie just noted. So both um, grew their ministries to be very large throughout uh, using innovative practices. So while Norris was an early adopter of radio evangelism, Hiles was an early adopter of the bus ministry. And both of these were very effective methods by which to grow the church. Both at one point claimed to have the largest Sunday school in the country. In fact, I personally believe that the title of world's largest Sunday school held even more importance to Jack Hiles because it was an award that was previously held by J. Frank Norris, who was his greatest influence. You could describe Norris as like the archetype for Hiles in in a very metaphorical sense, but also in a literal sense. And this is where things get real weird. So yeah, buckle up. I found an article on independentbaptist.com titled Two Drunkard Sons Who Changed the World. This article notes that both Hiles and Norris had alcoholic fathers. We have since learned throughout the course of doing this podcast that Hiles' father wasn't actually an alcoholic and that Hiles 
origin story of taking refuge in the church and then deciding to become a minister, that that story was entirely fabricated. So I went back to look up more details about Hiles' origin story, and I found more similarities between Hiles and Norris in the biography of Jack Hiles written by Elmer Towns, published in 1974. Uh, have you read this one, Sadie? I don't believe I have read this one. I have read the later biography by Cindy, his daughter. This book is essentially, um, and having read it, this book is essentially state-sanctioned media for First Baptist Church of Hammond. And Hiles, because it was written while he was still alive with his authorization, Hiles, like Norris, claimed to have a, a violent alcoholic father. Hiles, like Norris, claims to have a religious mother who took him to church where he became inspired to be a minister. Hiles, like Norris, tells a story about breaking liquor bottles. Hiles, according to Towns, also had an incredible memory for events that happened when he was only two years old. Of course, like when the story is fabricated, you don't actually have to remember what it yeah. is. If, like, yeah, so like, who knows if those memories are real. So there there's like a lot of very startling similarities between these two stories. And I didn't grow up in like an old school fundamentalist Christian culture or like I, I don't know if any of these elements would have been common enough to have been like considered tropes in a pastor's origin story. But I do know this. I do know that Jack Hiles invented his father's alcoholism. I know that Jack Hiles also stole the story of Paul Sand uh, that he used in his duty sermon from uh, Reverend Douglas Laird of Dixie Heights Baptist Church, um, and we uncovered this last year. Jack Hiles also idolized J. Frank Norris. My question is, is it possible that Jack Hiles plagiarized his entire origin story off of J. Frank Norris's? I would say that it is possible, but the thing that's most suspicious to me is not one of the things that you just mentioned. What is it? It's the Sunday school curriculum. Really? Mm-hmm. So the breaking liquor bottles thing is not suspicious to me for a very particular reason. I know of somebody personally who had a very similar story uh, regarding themselves and their grandfather. Uh, their grandfather was uh, an alcoholic and was getting towards the end of his life and just ruining his health with the amount that he was drinking. And this person, who I consider beyond a reliable narrator, told me of a story. They, they were a teenager and their grandfather was in old age and they had a incredibly similar story of breaking liquor liquor bottles and pouring them down the kitchen sink i mean it's not that different thing like flushing somebody's drug stash or like i remember in like the Beezus and ramona books they replaced uh ramona and, and Beezus quimby replaced their dad's cigarettes with like rolled up pieces of paper that said that smoking's bad for you or something. Mm -hmm. I and mean, it's not that different from that. This like that's a believable story. Yeah. The part that is too similar to me is the thing about the the Sunday school curriculum. Because it is literally the same story. Pastor come pastor comes on the scene, starts with a tiny church, builds it way up. And the thing that gives him issues with the Southern Baptist Convention is Sunday school curriculum literally the exact same story. And that's also an issue that you could really use to if if it because if they're doing Sunday school wrong, that's the children. Right. It it involves the children and it also involves biblical literalism, biblical inerrancy, things that are hugely important to 
specifically fundamentalist Baptist doctrine, and it paints the person who had the issue with the Sunday school curriculum as a righteous crusader for the fundamentals, not as a troublemaker or a problem person or anything like that. And I'm wondering whether Jack Hiles like specifically said, J. Frank Norris did this, so I'm going to do this, or if he's just like, I mean, it worked for J. Frank Norris, so maybe it'll work for me if I'm trying to have the same career trajectory as him. The, the way that I look at it is both of them wanted out of the Southern Baptist Convention because they wanted to be their own man and say what they wanted to say and run their church the way they wanted to run it. But they needed a reason. They needed an, ex- needed an excuse. So I think Hiles had already decided to leave the Southern Baptist Convention and then he needed a reason and the Sunday school curriculum came up. Yeah, because Norris was trying to leverage the Sunday school curriculum issue into him being more powerful, whereas Hiles was saying, well, if I do this, they they kicked out Norris for this, then maybe Mm -hmm. this will be a good enough reason for me to break with them. But Norris's story of getting kicked out of the convention has been retconned into Norris was a badass who fought the convention and left them behind in his dust. And that's not remotely accurate. He got unwillingly kicked out of the Southern Baptist Convention and then spent several years trying to get back in. Yeah, but then he can make himself into a martyr because of it. So it's perfect. Right. And then he can... The the thing about Norris is, as I'm reading these books about him, he was not a physically strong man, which is actually very different from Jack Hiles. Um, When Hiles was in his best shape, he was uh, notably a incredible softball player, I hear. But um, Hiles, or maybe no one wanted to strike out the pastor. Yeah, and this could this could be propaganda (laughs) now that I'm saying it. But I have heard that Hiles could throw a hundred mile pitch. I mean, your dad was on the the sketch team, and he was like, "You can't make fun of my hair." Like, I I don't know. It it does seem like you have to like you have to let the pastor win every game. Like you can't you can't strike out the pastor. The (laughs) reports of Hiles. Or he'll talk about you from the pulpit, or he'll say... Make racially charged jokes about you from the pulpit. I've received a letter from the (laughs) cousin of Deacon John Howardson, and his cousin says that he's not the man that he claims to be. (laughs) But, But I, you know, Norris was... He never got his health back 100% after being shot when he was 14. And all of these stories about him have become this, have have painted this image of a pastor on the the fringe of the Wild West, the pistol packing preacher, the Texas tornado, and just what a a huge, massive badass he was. And uh, I think that has given him this mythical quality among fundamentalists that makes them even more likely to want to emulate him because of the type of masculinity that he's associated with. Well, it's very much the Jesus and John Wayne thing. So it's interesting to wonder whether Hiles plagiarized. Hold on. Hold on. I'm going to mute my mic for a second. Y'all just hang in there. Am I? I, Okay, so I may be losing it from lack of sleep. But was there not a fire at First Baptist Church of Hammond right like like shortly after Hiles became pastor? Uh, you know what? I don't I know. To, no, this is this is important. Are you searching the document or, or like I our Google am. Doc for? I mean, you yeah, can do I it. Absolutely, you can... I'm getting all the Dinah House Fire episodes. 
I love Dinah. That's our old, uh, our old color coding. Where yours were color coded and mine weren't. So it's not in the first family. I would have sworn that. Hold, I, I have to find this. Can you control F that Hiles biography that you wrote that you read? Hold on, let me find it. Because all I'm getting is Jack Scott fired, which is not helping. Who did I say wrote the Hiles biography? It was Elmer L. Towns. Yeah, it was. I found it on Liberty University's website. They had it published there. Thanks, Liberty, for actually doing something helpful. I really think there was a fire at First Baptist Church of Hammond. Either that or I'm losing it and I need to go to the Hot Springs Sanitarium with J. Frank Norris. Hold on. Um, there's something about Jack Howard. Like in like fire. the 60s or 70s. Hold on. What the f***? Wait. Oh my God. Look. Okay. So here, here I found a passage. It says... Um, on June 5th, 1964, Jack Hiles received a call at 1.10 in the morning. You'd better come downtown. The church is burning. The words of the fire chief electrified Hiles. An arsonist had set fire to three of the buildings. When he arrived, the flames were spurting out of every part of the old auditorium. The church had just completed a new auditorium building, and it had occupied and had occupied it three months before. Hiles looked down in the basement of the new building and saw firemen wading up, wading in water up to their knees. He stood on Sibley Street in the dark crying when one of the pastors, Jim Lyons, put a hand on his shoulder. Preacher, we've been through a lot together. He walked around the back alley and came up behind the new building, putting both hands on the wall. He could feel the heat inside. He began to pray, and the fire chief yelled, Are you crazy? That building might go at any moment. He yelled at Hiles to get out of the alley. However, the determined preacher did not respond cheerfully to orders. He placed both hands flat on the building and prayed, Lord, spare this building. Then he made the second request from his father, Lord, show me you love me. God answered the first prayer in the three, and there was some smoke and water damage in the new building. But within one day, they had cleaned it up and had services there the following Sunday. God also answered the second prayer. When Hiles got home from the fire, his wife gave him a letter from Russell Anderson, a millionaire he had never met, who later became co-founder of Hiles Anderson Publish Publishing Company and Hiles Anderson College. Inside the envelope, Anderson stated, I heard you preach in Pontiac and it brought blessing to my heart. I know you must get discouraged sometimes enclosed is a gift of five hundred dollars hiles responded no one ever gave me that much money in my life i took it as a sign from god the lord has shown jack hiles that he was loved there was arson at first baptist church dude this is this is <gasps> oh my god this is so loony do you th like i mean this was <sighs> This oh is in 1964. God. This is like during the Hiles. This is like before he was mega church, mega church. This is when he was still an up and comer. Yeah. He was established, <clears throat> but he wasn't like, I have the world's largest Sunday school yet. This is like five or six years before that or seven years before that. We're going to have to look and see if we can find if there was any insurance money from that or what. Because Jesus, this is. <sighs> what if Jack Hiles plagiarized? <laughs> arson well i did not expect to find that in the middle of recording no but that like 
Sadie's Sadie's sleep deprivation brain never fails to provide <laughs> the. This is this is true. I am at my best as a creative when I have had about three hours of sleep. Um, yeah, which I can only do for about one night in a row, and that was what happened last night because of circumstances that will probably be dis- discussed at a later date. Um, or they. So speaking of arson, there was. Uh, back to J. Frank Norris, there was also a 1929 incident of arson, which I feel like we should just all be on the same page about this uh, under very similar circumstances to the arson 20-ish years earlier. Norris announced they were going to build an even newer, even bigger auditorium. This time he boasted that the new auditorium would be fireproof. And before the new building could even be built, the old building burned to the ground in an unsolved case of suspected arson. Jesus Christ, this is like... They didn't, they didn't take Norris to trial over the 1929 arson. I don't know if they just didn't have evidence or if they were just tired of him getting acquitted of all the crimes. This, you know, we should probably put the cult true crime tag on this one because as it turns out, J. Frank Norris was adjacent to a lot of crimes j frank norris did a lot of crimes let's let's be real like yeah i mean i fully believe he did at least the later what was it the 1912 arson i mean i also feel like he inspired a lot of crimes too and he also consorted with like a very real domestic terrorist organization so i mean let's see he's got murder arson perjury terrorism like i mean unfortunately um sexual assault is on his list of crimes as well so quick trigger warning for that um this is going to be a pretty brief mention simply because i don't have a lot of information i tried but we'd we'd be remiss not to mention it norris was accused of a brutal sexual assault the sources are really really scarce the sources are solid I just couldn't find the additional information I was looking for. So I'm reading directly from Menace in the Mega Church. In 1940, Norris was accused of attempting to seduce the wife of a colleague. The woman released a public letter detailing, quote, multiple attempts to initiate a sexual relationship with her, end quote. This statement included details about Norris, quote, tearing her clothes, Soon, other accusers came forward, even young students at Norris's college. One major fundamentalist leader whose support lent credibility to the charges was William Bell W.B. Riley, pastor of First Baptist Church in Minneapolis and founder of Northwestern Schools. Riley was a man of impeccable integrity and intellectual force. He had once been closely associated with Norris, but eventually distanced himself. About the accusations against Norris, Riley wrote, If I were making a guess, I should say that she is only one of possibly a hundred. Yeah, so this is a guy who spent time around Norris and says, I know how this dude operates. Yeah. Unfortunately, it seems like within evangelical Christianity and within a lot of other places too, there is a code of silence when it comes to powerful men in ministry, sadly. I was not even able to find this letter or these allegations republished online anywhere. Menace in the Megachurch credits, which again is an incredibly well-sourced book, and I feel that it is certainly accurate, credits this information to a book called One and Hope and Doctrine. 
by Kevin Bowder and Robert Delnay. I looked high and low to try to find this open letter or figure out like she published it and it would probably have been in a large Baptist publication because it got out enough that multiple other accusers joined in and said, yes, me too. But I couldn't, because it didn't name what Baptist publication it was in, I I looked and looked and couldn't find anything. Norris's influence did take a major hit because of these rape allegations. This was the beginning of a slow fade over the next decade before his death. There were multiple, multiple slander and libel lawsuits. Norris pastored two churches, so he kept his church in Fort Worth and then also became the pastor of a church in Detroit. So he would be like in one church one week and the other church the next week. He used trains and airplanes to commute back and forth. And this brought his combined church membership at its highest to over 26,000 people and made him the first megachurch pastor ever, as far as we know. As his star was fading, younger preachers like Jack Hiles and John R. Rice were taking center stage and propelling fundamentalism into its next big wave. The really interesting thing is that Jack Hiles and John R. Rice were using Norris's stories, using his affectations, his style, his techniques, and citing any connection that they had to him for Fundy Clout even as his influence as the grandfather of fundamentalism, the grandfather of the IFB, was slowly dripping away. And um, knowing what we know about J. Frank Norris, I hope that was absolutely miserable for him. Can you imagine being him and not losing it all? Like, Scop bet it all, lost it all, deserved it. Norris didn't even have the closure of losing everything all in one go. It was just a slow drip for the rest of his life, watching himself, who had once been so relevant that his opinions were courted by presidents, so relevant that he was invited to England by Winston Churchill. He had to sit by and watch his health begin to fail and watch these younger men using his stories, his techniques, gain power and influence as his slowly, excruciatingly slowly faded. That brings me a lot of satisfaction. <laughs> for me, it doesn't. And I'll tell you why. Truman asked for Norris's opinion in 1947. Norris only lived until 1952. So that was within like the last five years of his life that he was getting the asked for, you know, advice from presidents. And I think that by the time that he was sort of fading out, like he would have known that he was fading out and these other guys were coming in. He's like, well, there you go. I'm the big daddy. I started it all. It's hard to it's hard to speculate how he would have felt because we know so little. And I'm going to talk about this more when we get to his murder trial. He was known for being very disingenuous with his displays of emotion. And it is almost impossible to guess what he was thinking. So I guess I prefer to imagine him as frustrated watching his influence fade. But we, we don't really know because he was very crafty with hiding his emotions. Norris died in August of 1952 while preaching at a youth camp in Florida. 50 years later, <laughs> I was still hearing his stories. Next week, we're going to dig into the story of his murder trial 
And of course, the infamous brain in a jar story, which were the two most common stories that I heard about J. Frank Norris. These are the stories that whether it was what he wanted or not became his legacy more than anything else. And we're going to dig into them with a critical eye and see what we find. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to this episode of the Leaving Eden podcast. We can't wait to see you back here next week. If you like our show, if you're a fan of our show, then you can check out our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. You can check out the extended uncensored ad-free version of today's episode that is on our Patreon, um, which is patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast. Also, if you subscribe to our Patreon, you get all of our episodes two days early. So you get them on a uh, uh, Saturday instead of Monday. Uh, so you can, you have all weekend to listen to them before everyone else gets to them. You can uh, follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram and threads at leaving Eden podcast. And you can follow me on Facebook and Instagram and threads at G-A-V-R-I-E-L-H-A-C-O-H-E-N. Sadie, you want to plug your socials? Sure. You can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music, on the app formerly known as Twitter at Hell Yes Sadie, and on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter One. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. You guys have a great day. Bye-bye. No